Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17 for our time of study in God's Word. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, uh, we come this morning to John chapter 17, verse uh, 11, and my goal today is to cover verses 11 through 19. And the title of the message uh, this morning is A Prayer of Consecration. A Prayer of Consecration. When John Knox, uh, the great Scottish reformer, was on his deathbed in November of 1572, his wife was reading to him uh, from various passages of Scripture. And at one point, he said to his wife, Go where I cast my first anchor. She knew exactly what he meant. She turned to Jesus' prayer in John 17, and she read the full length of Jesus' prayer to her husband. When she finished reading John 17, John Knox said to her, What a comfort that chapter is. What a comfort that chapter is. At that time, the Church of Scotland was plagued by dangers from without and threats from within. John Knox had accomplished so much during his life and his ministry, but so much was still left unfinished, which he knew he was going to have to leave to others to accomplish And of all the chapters of the Bible, John 17 was the passage that he wanted to hear on his deathbed because it contained the prayer of Jesus for his church. Like the church of Scotland in John Knox's day, we find ourselves living in a day when the church is beset with dangers from without and threats from within. And we need to hear John 17 in our own day just as much as John Knox needed to hear it in his day, both to comfort our hearts and to encourage us to enter more fully into the destiny that I think Christ charts out for us in this prayer that we find in John 17. And of all Sundays of the year, I can't think of a better thing for us to do than to continue to hear Jesus praying essentially for his church. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 through 10 of John 17, where Jesus celebrated his disciples for keeping his word and for knowing and understanding the truth about him and believing the truth about him. And he says to his father at the end of verse 10, and this is where we ended last week, he said to his father, I have been glorified in them. If your ears were itching yesterday morning, very early in the morning, it was because yesterday morning in our elders prayer meeting, we got to join Jesus in praising the father for you. It was a wonderful time of prayer, and I think you would have been encouraged to hear the way that 
your elders were praising the Lord for the ways that Christ has been glorified in you. Speaking of Christ being glorified at the very outset of Jesus' prayer, we saw last week how he said to his father in verse 1, look at verse 1, at his request, he says, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Everything else that Jesus prays in this prayer spins off of this deep longing of Jesus expressed here in verse 1. Every request he makes is prayed in order to fulfill this overarching goal of glorifying God the Father and God the Son together. So as we look at verses 11 through 19 this morning, what I want us to observe, and you'll see this on the hard copy of the notes if you were able to grab them uh, when you came in or during the greeting time, we're going to observe three petitions that Jesus makes for his disciples to ensure that he and his father will be glorified in them. Jesus knows he can't just leave the disciples nor us to ourselves to glorify God the Father and God the Son. God needs to do a work on our behalf in order to enable us and equip us to glorify him. And so Jesus is pleading with his father or praying to his father on our behalf and utters three petitions to that end. And the first petition we can word this way. He essentially says to his father, keep them, in other words, his disciples, in our shared name so that they may be one as we are. Keep them in our shared name so that they may be one as we are. Observe what Jesus says to his father about his disciples in verse 11, where he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus obviously is still in the world as he prays this prayer, but his departure is so imminent that he even now is saying, I am no longer in the world. And he knows that when he departs from the world to return to his father, he's going to be leaving his disciples behind, leaving them very much in the world that he is departing. And as we're going to discover this morning, this leaving of his disciples behind is not some unfortunate oversight. This is the plan of God for Jesus' disciples. Look at the text. When Jesus says to his father, I come to you, he is speaking about his return to heaven something that he very much longs for, but it does leave him with a burden on his heart. And that is the burden of concern for the welfare of his disciples. I think it was 21 years ago, we had a father of four daughters here at Cornerstone who was dying of cancer. 
He was 39 years old. In the weeks before his death, I asked him what he was feeling, and he told me that he had very strong, mixed feelings. He said to me, I'm not afraid of death at all. I can't wait to see Jesus, and that excites me. But I feel a deep concern for the spiritual welfare of my girls after I'm gone. And I think we can all understand that. This is the conflict that Jesus feels in this moment. He is excited about going to his father and being with his father in heaven, but he is concerned for the disciples that he is leaving behind. So what does Jesus do with this burden? He entrusts his disciples to the care of his father and says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. In calling his father, Holy Father, Jesus is speaking of his father as completely holy in every way, set apart from evil and able to sanctify and make holy anyone whom he desires. This is also Jesus' way of saying that he is the perfect father, unlike our earthly fathers, as good as they may be, none of them are perfect, but Jesus has the perfect father who will do the right thing with the petitions that he is bringing to him right now in prayer. And Jesus' request is found in verse 11, where he speaks to his father about his disciples, and he says, keep them in your name. That's the request. And to keep someone is to treasure them and to cherish them. It means to keep someone from harm or from evil or to keep them from being lost. And it means to keep someone for oneself. And this is what Jesus is asking the father to do for his disciples whom he loves so much. As for how Jesus wants his father to keep his disciples, Jesus, look at the text, ask him to keep them in your name. Here the word name stands as a synonym for the father's person and the father's character for his glory and the power and goodness of the father's person and character. So Jesus is saying to his father, keep them by means of the glory and power and goodness of your character and keep them inside of that glory and power and goodness of who you are. You might want to write this reference down in Proverbs 18, verse 10. Solomon says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And it is that strong tower that Jesus is wanting his father to keep his disciples in for their eternal safety and protection. As for the father's name, Jesus describes this name of the father. Look at the text in verse 11 as the name which you have given me, Jesus says, meaning that everything good about the Father, he imparts to Jesus. Jesus' glory and Jesus' power 
and Jesus' goodness are not his independently of his father, but all of his attributes, which are so beautiful, are eternally derived from his father, which is why Jesus could say to Philip back in chapter 14, if you have seen me, you have seen whom? The father. If you want to learn about the name of the father with all that the word name means, look at Jesus. He is the personal embodiment of the father's name. All that is good about the father you find in Jesus. Look again at verse 11. The reason Jesus wants the father to keep his disciples in their shared name or their shared goodness and glory is so that they may be one even as we are. And if you look at the language and the grammar that Jesus is using here in the Greek text, you would see that Jesus isn't praying here that the father will make it come to pass that his disciples might become one in the future. Instead, Jesus is praying that the disciples would continue to be one or go on being one like they are currently. As the commentator Leon Morris says, the unity prayed for here is a unity already given. And that unity is in Jesus. And it is a unity that will always be there so long as these disciples are in Jesus. Does that make sense? This means that even when the disciples were arguing with each other earlier this very evening about which of them was the greatest in the kingdom, there was a unity between them even during that argument. And that unity was in Jesus. And because they were being kept in a place where they were looking to Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior, Jesus was there in that moment to settle their dispute and to give them the perspective that they needed. So these disciples already had what we would call positional unity in Jesus. Jesus here is praying that this unity will continue But we must also say that Jesus is praying that this unity will give shape to their practical experience as well. I'm sure you understand that it's one thing to have union with others, but that union doesn't automatically equal genuine unity, right? As one writer says, you can tie two cats together by their tails and throw them over a clothesline and you would have union, but not unity. But Jesus here is expressing his desire that his disciples not merely have union in him, but also a meaningful, practical unity to such an extent that he petitions his father to keep them in his name. Look at the text again, that they may be one even as we are, father and son. How are Jesus and the father one? Well, they're united in purpose and 
in love and in truth and in mission, and they are united in loving relationship with one another. What belongs to the Father, as we have seen, he gives it to Jesus. And what he gives to Jesus, Jesus views it as still belonging to his Father. And being God the Father and God the Son, Jesus and the Father share the same essence with one another. And Jesus wants this unity he has with his Father to give shape to the unity his disciples have with each other. So he's praying that they will be one. In other words, that they will be united in mission and in truth and in love for Jesus and the Father and that they will continue to be united in the essence of the life of God that is within them even now. And he prays that they will mature in the fleshing out of this unity in the days to come as each of their hearts begin flowing more and more in the same direction in the current of God's love that we sang about earlier in our service. As one writer says, it is the divine unity of love that is being referred to here. All wills bowing in the same direction, all affections burning with the same flame, all aims directed to the same end. And that same end is the glory of God the Father and God the Son. Again, as we saw last Sunday in making this request for the Father to keep his disciples in his name, Jesus is praying the way he lived. He's asking for something that harmonizes beautifully with what his life and ministry were all about. Observe what he says in verse 12, speaking to his father. He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Notice the two statements Jesus makes here. The first is, I was keeping them in your name, and the second is, I guarded them. The reason the disciples are still with Jesus is not simply because they kept his word, as Jesus says they did in verse 6. The main reason they have kept his word is because Jesus was keeping them, right? These disciples might have patted themselves on the back and thought they were doing a good job of holding on to Jesus when others were not. They might have joined in with Chris Tomlin's lyrics saying, I'm holding on to your promises. But the truth is that he was holding on to them. And his holding on to them was the only reason that they were holding on to him. And when Jesus was keeping his disciples, he was keeping them in the Father's name, which the Father had given to Jesus in other words, he was keeping them in the Father's glory and love and power and goodness displayed through himself. Every step of the way, Satan was there trying to pick these men off 
and peel them away from Jesus. But Jesus held fast to these men, treasuring them and guarding them and keeping them to himself. Jesus did this keeping of them through the full length of his time that he was with them. But now that he's going away from them, he is entrusting this task over to his father and he's asking the father to now keep them. And you can bet that Jesus felt the sweetest comfort in having one so wonderful as his father to entrust his disciples to. And we have that same father that we can entrust those that we pray for to as well. But if you look again at verse 12, you'll see that the result of Jesus keeping and guarding of his disciples is that not one of them perished. That's how he begins. But then he says, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled Literally, what Jesus says here could be read, not one of them perished, but the son of perishing. We have the same Greek word occurring twice here. And in calling Judas literally the son of perishing, Jesus is describing Judas as exhibit number one of what perishing looks like and what it entails. And he is telling us that this perishing was an organic outcome of Judas's true character. One might think that it was a blight on Jesus' record that one of his very own 12 disciples ended up betraying him. But Jesus says here that the treachery of Judas actually fulfilled Scripture such as Psalm 41, verse 9. You can write that passage down where David says, and I quote, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, unquote. That betrayal has now happened to the greater David, Jesus. And that betrayer is Judas And Jesus wants his disciples to know as they listen in on this prayer that the betrayal of Judas was a part of God's sovereign plan. And there is mystery here. Yes, Judas was fully responsible for his choices. And yes, he will be judged by God for the choices that he made consistent with his own evil character Yet even still, his betrayal of Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture foreshadowed centuries prior in the Old Testament. Just like those who crucified Jesus did so in fulfillment of Scripture. But as for the other 11 of Jesus' disciples, Jesus kept them all. Not a one of them has fallen away. And now Jesus is entrusting this task of keeping them over to the father because he knows that the father alone is the one who can keep them in this way. And part of the reason that Jesus feels so burdened to petition the father to keep his disciples is because of the threats 
to their spiritual safety are real, which is part of why Jesus repeats this request with even greater specificity in the coming verses. And this leads us to the second petition of Jesus for his disciples to ensure that he and his father will be glorified in them on the road ahead. Petition number two, we can word it this way, fulfilling my joy in them, keep them from the evil of this world. Fulfilling my joy in them, keep them from the evil of this world. Observe what Jesus says to his father in verse 13. He says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Again, when Jesus says, but now I come to you, he is speaking of his return to his father in heaven. But Jesus has said many things on this very night, and he is right now saying many things in his prayer. And his reason for all that he is saying is, look at the text, so that his disciples may have my joy made full in themselves. This is the desire of Jesus for his disciples, that they have joy, that they have his joy, and that they have his joy made full in themselves. And everything Jesus has said, and everything that he is now praying, and in everything Jesus has ever done or will do for these disciples, including returning to his Father in heaven, Jesus, through all of that, is fighting for their fullness of joy. Just as he has been fighting for our fullness of joy in him. And there's a reason Jesus wants his disciples to have this fullness of joy. And that's because this joy, the very joy of Christ in them, being made full in them, will help them to bear up under the hatred of the world. Listen to Jesus as he continues in verse 14, saying to his father about his disciples, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. As we saw back in chapter 15, this word for hate can speak of anything from a loathing with disgust to simply viewing someone as worthless or of no account. And according to Jesus' words here, the world has already hated his disciples. And there are two reasons Jesus gives for that. First, because Jesus had successfully given to them the Father's word such that they were actually keeping it, according to verse 6 in this chapter. And secondly, the world hated them because these disciples were not of the world. In other words, these disciples had been born again from above and had received the life of God within them. So having received this life from God, these men were not of the world, but they were of God. 
and being not of the world in this way. These men were not getting their cues from the world any longer, but they were getting their cues from Jesus, which made them now rebels against the world. They've been giving heed to Jesus' word, not the word of the world. And for this reason, the world already hates them and is only going to hate them more in the days to come. And I don't need to tell you guys that we can expect the same thing to be true of us in our world today, right? Only nowadays, many in our world would never confess to hating us. Instead, they accuse us of being the haters, right? Because we don't buy into the new morality of our world, which holds that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. A new morality in which homosexuality and other sorts of sexual sin are celebrated as good and noble because we don't buy into the new morality of this world. We are called the haters and our churches are called hate groups by some. But if the world wants to talk this way about us, let them talk. Their word does not matter to us like Jesus' word matters. And Jesus says here that it's the world that hates us for two reasons. Because we are not of the world and because Jesus has given us his word, which we now treasure over the word of this world. Jesus continues in verse 15 and gets to the core of his second request when he says to the father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. This is actually a more pivotal moment than we might realize because the disciples were not of the world and because Jesus was about to leave this world and be crucified by the world, one might have wondered if Jesus would want his disciples to just leave this world with him or at least go out into the wilderness and completely shun the world like some religious groups did even back in this day. In fact, earlier this very evening, the disciples all professed that they would be willing to die with Jesus, indicating that they would have loved to leave this world together with Jesus. And I think many times we feel the same way. But this is not what Jesus wants. He says to his father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Why is that? Well, because Jesus wants the disciples to go into the world of non-believers, just like he did, and engage the world and shine his light upon the world so that many in the world might see their love and hear their proclamation and come to know the truth about Jesus and be saved. This is God's love for the world. God so loves the world that he leaves you in it 
to tell people about Jesus and to shine his light. And we should all be grateful for Jesus' decision to leave his disciples on earth to engage the world, right? Because at one time, every one of us in this room who knows Jesus was once a part of the world. But thankfully, some disciple whom Jesus left in the world reached out to us and told us about Jesus. And God enabled us to believe their proclamation and be saved. So we should be most grateful that Jesus did not call his disciples out of the world here in this passage, but he left them in the world with a mission that eventually traveled through the centuries and reached you and me. And now we have the privilege of being in the world and being the means through which others might now hear the good news of salvation through Jesus and believe and be saved just as we were. But as you guys know, this world is a dangerous place, so much so that Jesus feels compelled to pray for his disciples and say to his father in verse 15, look at the text again, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus' solution to the danger of this world is not to isolate us from the world, but to simply ask his father to protect us from the evil of the world that Jesus is leaving us in and sending us into. The Greek expression that is translated the evil one here in the New American Standard uh, in verse 15 could be referring to the evil of this world system, or it could be talking about the evil one himself as in Satan. Either way, the meaning is the same. In 1 John 5, 19, you can write that reference down. 1 John 5, 19, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is the one who leads the world system into the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. These are powerful evils that you and I could never resist on our own if we were left to fend for ourselves. So Jesus prays for us. He prays to his father and petitions his father to keep us from succumbing in some final way to the evil of this world or succumbing in some final way to the evil one himself. And by the way, this is why Jesus, I think, has just expressed that he wants his joy to be made full in us because his joy made full in us is our greatest protection from the evils of this world. And from that place of joy, Jesus wants for us to go into the world and influence the world rather than allow the world to influence us. His prayer is that we would rescue the people of the world from the evil of their ways rather than allowing them to draw us into the evil of their ways. Jesus doesn't send us out into the world so that we could just 
be just like the world. He sends us into the world so that we can joyfully shine the light of Christ and declare his truth so that through our witness, some might come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. In verse 16, Jesus speaks to his father about his disciples and he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. His disciples have the life of God within them as we do. And they receive their marching orders from Jesus and not from the world. The result of this is that Jesus' followers are in, but not of the world. Just as Jesus was right now in, but not of the world. And with this being the case, the disciples are now ready to be consecrated in this prayer for the mission and the world that Jesus is going to be sending them on. And this leads us to the third petition of Jesus for his disciples to ensure that he and his father will be glorified in them. We can word his petition this way. Sanctify them in the truth of your word as I sanctify myself. He prays to his father, essentially saying, sanctify them in the truth of your word as I sanctify myself. Observe Jesus' petition in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify someone means to set them apart or to consecrate them for some special mission or ministry. Uh, You can write two of these references down in Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. God told Jeremiah that he consecrated Jeremiah for his prophetic ministry, even while Jeremiah was in his mother's womb. In Exodus 28, 41 God instructed that Aaron and his sons be consecrated or sanctified so that they can serve him and the people as priests. So when Jesus petitions his father here to sanctify his disciples, he's asking his father to set his disciples apart for their special ministry in the world. But notice how this sanctifying of his disciples is to happen. Jesus says, sanctify them how? In the truth. This expression could be translated, sanctify them by the truth, as the New International Version translates it. Or it could be translated, sanctify them in the truth. And almost certainly both meanings are intended here. As for what the truth is that Jesus is talking about, he says to his father, your word is truth. Which on one level can refer to all of scripture, at least by way of application. But in this case, primarily speaks in this moment of the body of revelation that the father has given to his disciples through Jesus, through the lips of of Jesus at the core of which is the good news of salvation and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is called both the word and the truth 
in this gospel. This word that Jesus is referring to here when he says your word is truth is to be both the means by which these men are consecrated and it's to be what they are consecrated into. And it is to be the content of the message that they are to deliver to their world. In other words, everything the disciples have heard Jesus say is to serve as the means by which they are set apart. It is to be what they are set apart to be in. And it is also to be what they are set apart to deliver and communicate to the world. Jesus doesn't pray for the father here to sanctify his disciples in their own truth, but in the truth. And what truth is that? He says, your word is truth. Christianity, guys, is a revelation-centered religion. And that revelation comes from God. We can't just make stuff up. We need to hear what God has to say and then behave and believe accordingly and be sanctified as Jesus is talking about here. I love the way D.A. Carson explains how the father accomplishes this consecration of his disciples in the truth of his word. Carson says, and I quote, the father will immerse Jesus' followers in the revelation of himself, in his son. He will send them the Holy Spirit to guide them into all the truth. In practical terms, Carson says, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him, without learning to live in conformity with the word that God has graciously given. Unquote. As a church, this is how you and I allow God to sanctify us for the mission that he calls us to fulfill by allowing him to immerse us in his word such that we are living in it and being sanctified by it and having it in our hearts to then deliver to others. Some churches nowadays have tried to set themselves up for ministry to the world by abandoning the word of Christ. But we don't want to do that. Jesus wants the word of the Father through him to be what we are sanctified by, what we're sanctified in, such that it serves as the content of our message to the world. I mean, where else would we go? What else would we preach to the world other than Jesus and the message of salvation through him? Jesus is the one and the only one who has the words of eternal life. Amen? Just as Jesus desired with his disciples, he wants his father to consecrate us in the truth and by the truth and for the truth of Jesus Christ, which he sends us to declare to the world. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in verse 18, speaking to his father. He says, as you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world. So, Father, you sent me into the world, not just to bide my time, but on a mission. And I send my disciples into the world on a mission as well. Into the world where non-believers are. Jesus' language here is another reminder that he wants us to go into the world of non-believers like an invading force for good. And he wants us consecrated by the truth and in the truth so that we can declare that truth, God's truth to the world, all the while being protected by that very truth from the evil of this world. And Jesus' language here reminds us that Christ's mission and our mission are very much aligned with one another. The Father sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus sends us into the world. This is why in verse 19, Jesus returns his focus to his own unfinished assignment from the Father. For he knows that if he does not complete his mission, then the disciples can never be truly sanctified in the truth, nor would they have any saving message of truth to deliver to the world, nor would they have any real ministry to be sent out to fulfill. So in verse 19, look at what Jesus says to his father. He says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Back in John chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus spoke about himself as the one whom, and I quote, the father sanctified and sent into the world, unquote. So we know that the father has already sanctified Jesus for his ministry when he sent his son into the world. Yet now here we see Jesus sanctifying himself. And in so doing, all he's really doing here is joining his father in setting himself apart for his greatest work that he is about to do at the cross. As the ancient church father Chrysostom suggests, Jesus' words, I sanctify myself here, are tantamount to him saying, I offer myself in sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is saying right now in verse 19, I consecrate myself just as Old Testament sacrifices were consecrated before being slain. I consecrate myself for what I am about to do in going to the cross, which was his greatest work. And notice in verse 19 how concerned Jesus is that this would redound to the benefit of his disciples. Look at verse 19, for their sakes, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus here is sanctifying himself, setting himself apart for his final work of dying on the cross in order to provide the basis 
for his disciples' own sanctification. So when you put everything Jesus has been saying together, you realize on one level that there were two means by which his disciples were sanctified for the work that Jesus is sending them out on. The first means of their sanctification is the truth, which is the word of the Father as it has come through the lips of Jesus. And we learn that in verse 17. The second means of their sanctification is Jesus' completed work at the cross. And the same is true for us. Our consecration for ministry comes by means of Christ's word and by means of his work. It comes by means of the revelation spoken by Jesus and by means of the redemption wrought by Jesus at the cross. His word and the cross are to be the means by which we are rendered sanctified and set apart for our mission in the world. And his word and the cross are to be the content of our message to the world, right? I love the fact that we're working through these verses this Sunday because it brings us back to the basics of our charter as a church. Just as Jesus desired for the disciples to be consecrated for their ministry in the world that lay ahead of them, may we allow the Father to sanctify and set us apart for whatever it is that he has for us to do in 2024. And may we allow the Father to consecrate us by means of the word and the cross, with the result being that we are a people of the cross and of the book. May we continue to be a church that embraces the preaching and the teaching of the scriptures. And may we continue to be a church that engages in continuous evangelism and evangelizing the world and one another with the good news of how Christ can bring salvation to sinners and transformation to the saints through all that he accomplished at the cross. And may we continue to be a congregation of ministers who make the word of Christ and the work of Christ, the content of our message to each other and to the world. May we not seek to withdraw from the world and seek to become an island unto ourselves, but realize that Christ wants us in the world where non-believers are as we work together with non-believers and shop where they shop and engage with them. And when I say world, guys, I'm talking about the world of our day. Maybe you don't like the state of our world today and you wish that we lived in the good old days of some bygone era. Maybe you miss the 80s or the 90s when it didn't seem like the world was so bad as it is now. But guys, this is our time. 
And God has raised us up for a time such as this. And he has placed us here in 2024 to do his work and make a difference in this world. So let's not roll our eyes and sigh and wish for another world, but seek to make a difference in this world. And let us resist the temptation to compromise with this world, but seek to be boldly different from the world as we show them a way to live and believe that is far, far better than what the world has to offer. This is actually the best way that we can serve the world of our day. As William Kirk Kilpatrick once said, and I quote, People coming into the church are usually coming into the church because they are burned out on what the world has had to offer them. And we render them a great disservice when all we do is give them more of the same. Let's not do that. Let us not be afraid to march to the beat of Jesus Christ. Let us march to his beat rather than to the beat of the world. Let us value the word of the Father through Christ above anything our world today might say. If all the world says one thing, but Jesus says the other, then let us follow Jesus and not the word of this world. And may we know that if we are sanctified by God's truth and in God's truth and for God's truth, Our safety is assured because this is what Jesus prayed for and Jesus gets his prayers answered. Let us drink deeply of the words of Christ and drink deeply from the work of Christ at the cross so that we have the joy of Christ within ourselves even when all around us the world may hate us. Let us have his joy even when the hearts of everyone around us are melting with fear. And may this joy be our strength against the attacks of this world. And may his joy be our protection from the evils and from the temptations of this world. We, you and I who believe in Jesus, we are the people of God and we need to act like we know something. And what we know is that Jesus Christ is king. And that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus has sent us into the world. That he has prayed for us and prayed for our protection. And that our mission is guaranteed to succeed. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And let's be united with one another manifesting a unity that bears the marks of this very unity of the Father and the Son and their relationship with one another. And if anyone ever wonders who it is whom we are disciples of, may there be enough evidence to convince them that we must be disciples of Jesus because of the love that we have for each other. And when we fall short of doing any of these things And we will let us repent boldly at the foot of the cross 
and receive the forgiving grace of Jesus through his shed blood that provides atonement for the sins of all who believe in him. And may that grace cause us to love him more and melt our hearts into deeper layers of consecration to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we feel so blessed to be prayed over by Jesus in this way. It truly is a comfort to listen in to this moment of prayer where Jesus prays on so many levels for his church. And yes, he's praying for his disciples here, but he's going to go on to clarify in the coming verses that he's not in all that he's saying here, he's not just praying for them, but for those who will believe through their testimony. And that includes us gathered in this room. Sanctify us, Lord, by means of the truth. Sanctify us into your truth. And may your truth fill our hearts such that we have a clear message to give to the world that is floundering on so many levels and people are looking inside their own hearts for truth and all their hearts are spewing forth is lies that lead them to destruction but we have received our truth not from listening to our hearts, but Father, you sent your Son into the world who is the truth and who spoke the truth. And you've given us your Spirit so that we might know the truth and believe it. And may we go forth with this revelation and declare the truth, this truth to the world, and it's such glorious truth of your love and of your grace and of your kindness in sending your very own son into the world to live the life that we have failed to live and to die the death that we deserve to die. And then you raised him from the dead and ascended him to your own right hand so that from that position at your own right hand, Jesus can now grant repentance and give salvation to all who believe in him and give them the forgiveness of all of their sins. If there are any in this room this morning, Lord, that have never look to the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in him and experienced this forgiveness, I pray that you would touch their hearts and that they would see the beauty of this, this Savior and know that they can have this forgiveness even right now in this moment if they look to Jesus and cry out to him and believe in him as their Savior and Lord. 
Lord, you have sanctified us as a people by your word and by the cross and not just so we can sit around and waste our time, but you have sanctified us for a mission and we ask that you would help us to fulfill that mission. I thank you for this congregation, Lord, of such dear brothers and sisters and all the ways that they live on mission and show your love to one another and to the world. You truly have been glorified in them. And my heart, and I know their heart, Lord, is that in the days to come, that would continue that we would be sanctified ever more deeply by the truth and into the truth and declare it ever more clearly and fervently to a world that needs the truth. So help us, keep us. May your joy be made full in us and driven by that joy and truth and grace may we fulfill the calling that you have given to us. We promise, Lord, that we will give you all the praise and all the glory for any good that you do through us. And we say these things to you in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,